0: You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, we are continuing in our sermon series, God of Refuge. We're toward the end. We have this week and next week, and then we wrap up this study of the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, In two weeks, we'll start a new sermon series in the book of Titus that we've titled, A Healthy Church in a hectic world. I'm really excited about that sermon series, but, not, uh, but we're not quite done with the Psalms of Ascent. I believe that God has more that he wants to speak to us and say to us from the Psalms of Ascent. We've been looking at this unique collection of Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, this year with the hopes that God would use them in our lives as a source of renewal. And I believe that God's done that. These Psalms have not only spoken to us this year, as we've been studying them, but they've spoken for us. They've, they've helped us navigate a lot of the uncertainties and complexities and challenges that we've been facing over the last year. And I believe that as we look at Psalm 133 this morning, that God wants to speak to us again, that he wants to reorient, use this psalm to reorient our hearts and our minds and our lives around him, and then also around the beautiful gift of community, of Christian community. That's really what Psalm 133 is pointing our attention to. It's a psalm of David, and David wrote Psalm 133 to encourage the people of God to live in unity. That's really what community is. That's, community is kind of a buzzy word in the church. I want to find community even outside the church. It's, it's, a, it's where hey, I need to find community. It, really what it means is it means to live in unity with others. And David writes this psalm to encourage God's people to live in unity. Even more, it was written to encourage Unity among the people of God as they journeyed to Jerusalem for worship in the temple. That they would make the journey together in unity. That they would journey to God in unity, in other words, as they went there to celebrate and to worship those three times a year. That they would, when they, when they arrived into the temple gates, that they would worship in unity. And it's important that as we, as we get into this psalm that we even consider the question, why would Israel need such a song? Why would they need this song to encourage them into unity, remind them to journey in unity, remind them to worship in unity? Why would they need such a song? Well, just think about the scene. If you've been with us through this series, we've talked about this quite a bit. But as they journeyed to the temple to worship, these pilgrims were coming from a variety of different places. They were traveling from different locations. They would have been from a variety of different tribes. That would have meant that they would have had different backgrounds, different interests perhaps even spoken some different languages and dialects, and yet here they are being called up together, journeying together, called together into worship by one God. By one God. Did you know that? Did you know that God not only desires his people to live in unity, but God desires that we would worship him in unity? That's the picture? That's what pleases his heart? And so the ancient Israelites, they needed this song, as they journeyed together to remind them of the importance of unity. Church, we need this song. We need Psalm 133. Because living in unity isn't easy. Amen? Yeah, in your home, it's not easy. Um, It's not easy in the church, living in unity. In fact, one of the major consequences of sin in this world is relational division. You might not know that. But sin is multifaceted. Um. Our sin, the sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve, the sin that plagues this world, it's multifaceted, it's personal, certainly. It's between us and God. It separates us from God, our sin does. But it's more than that. Sin is also relational. It, It separates us from one another, human to human, husband to wife, brother to sister, friend to friend, neighbor to neighbor. Sin is relational. It divides us. Sin is also, because it's personal and relational, it's also societal, Our sins then come together and we form societies that are broken and sinful and fractured. Sin is multifaceted. And our sin problem means we have a unity problem. In other words, because of sin, unity is rare. Because of sin, unity is not the norm in our human experience. Instead, the norm in our human experience is division and disunity. That's the norm. I mean, just think about it in your own life. I bet many of you in your families of origin, I bet the norm, I bet there's a lot of disunity and division in your family of origin. I bet there's some brokenness, some divorce, some relationships that are fractured and that need healing. All of us in our families of origin. Why? Because of sin. It's it, you, disunity, division. It's the norm. I mean, think about in your workplace. I bet in all of you, in, in your workplace, there's kind of, you know, some of those awkward relationships that you have to tiptoe around a bit. You have to be really careful um, you, you, what you say and how you act. And, because why? D- disunity and disconnection and, and getting fragmented from people and making assumptions and judgments and putting up walls. It's the norm. In our city, in our world, Division. Disunity, hatred, strife, tension, it's the norm. Even in the church, even amongst God's people, we're so quick to drift toward division and disunity. In fact, it's such a norm for us that many of us have just grown accustomed to disconnection and disunity. There's this concept in relational dynamic theory, this concept where you know some people, disunity and dysfunction in your families of origin is so common that it actually feels comfortable. And so when you start to get into healthy relationships, you, it, it, that actually feels uh, abnormal. And so people will start to kind of sabotage and create division because it, it actually feels more comfortable, whether it be in a family or a marriage or in a church, when there's tension and division. That's how broken our world is. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's the norm. We've grown accustomed to this. We've grown accustomed to mistrusting other people. That's our norm. That's how we typically enter into relationships. We've grown accustomed to dividing ourselves and segmenting our lives from others who don't look like us or think like us or act like us or have the same interests that we do. We are by nature people who put up walls and who make judgments. This is why we need Psalm 133. This is why the reminder in verse 1 is so profound. Look back at it. David says, behold, or take a look, consider, take a look, consider how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Here's what he's saying. He's saying what a refreshing treat it is, what a unique and beautiful thing it is, what a sign and wonder, what a miracle to the world it is when God's people Dwell in unity. Did you know that unity in the church is just as miraculous as God raising the dead or healing the sick? It is a sign and wonder. It is a gift when brothers and sisters, when God's people get along. It is beautiful and unique and refreshing when God's people come together in harmony, one purpose and one-minded. It is a beautiful gift and it is a refreshing treat when God's people come together as one. I have three kids. I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a three-year-old. And there are rare moments, refreshing treats, when the three of them will be sitting in the living room, playing peacefully together. I mean, it's rare. It is like, it's very rare. (laughs) And I'm not talking about sitting in the living room, you know, being all being good, kind of playing their own thing, you know, one on the Nintendo Switch, one with the Barbie dolls, uh, you know, uh, one, um, one playing Legos and everybody being good. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that refreshing, beautiful thing as a father to see the three of them peacefully together playing something together, imagining together, playing Legos together and enjoying one another's company. You see, in a similar way, the unity of God's children delights God's heart. In the way that that my children will delight my heart in those moments as a father. You see, our living in unity with one another, it's an act of worship to God. Did you know that? When we strive for unity, when we see the beauty and the gift of unity in the church, it's a way that we worship God. It's also a precious gift from God for us to receive for our good. God calls us together into the blessing of unity. We receive something from it. It does something for us and to us. It's for our good. It's something that we ought to treasure. It's a sacred gift from God. And David wants us to really take in and understand and comprehend what a wonderful, good gift it is when we live in unity. And so here's what he does in this song. He gives two poetic images to stir up the imagination and to stir up our longing to contend for unity in the church. Now, these two images that he gives in verse 2 and verse 3 probably seem very strange to you at first read, but I'm going to do my best to try and help us understand how significant they would have been to the ancient Israelites. Look at verse two. Let's look at the first image that he gives to show us how good and wonderful it is to experience unity. Verse two, he says, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The first image is of oil running down the beard of Aaron. Now, this brother Aaron must have had an incredible beard, all right? Probably had one of those, you know you know what I'm talking about, you know people like this with the, the big beard and they take their beard very seriously. In fact, I didn't shave all week long with the hopes that, you know, maybe I could have some form of a beard up here that would be impressive, but it was actually so embarrassing that uh, uh, I decided to shave this morning um, before I came. I can't grow a beard, but I did some consulting with some of my friends who can, and um, I found out that beard oil is kind of a big deal. You know, it's kind of an important thing. In fact, one of my friends even told me about beard butter. Who knew that beard butter was a thing? Um, what's he talking about here? What, 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 what in the world does, does oil and beards have to do with unity? What's he saying? Well, this is an image that comes directly from Exodus chapter 29. In fact, God himself gives some detailed instructions in Exodus 29 on how Israel was to set apart or consecrate their priests. In fact, if you are familiar with the Exodus story, God has rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt for centuries. They, had, uh, they didn't know who they were. They had no identity. They had lost their identity as, because they had been slaves in Egypt. God rescues them in miraculous fashion, and then he begins really the rest of Exodus. is us seeing him teaching them, reminding them, what it means to be his people, to be a light to the nations. And so he gives them laws so that they can know how to walk in his ways and experience life rather than falling into the traps of sin. Um, and he sets apart priests for them. Um, he tells them how to worship, worship him and all of this. And so as he's uh, setting apart the priesthood, here's what he says in Exodus chapter 29. I'm going to read verse 1 and then verse 4 through 7. He says this, listen. He says, Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priest. You shall bring Aaron and his big beard and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, these are the priestly, the priestly clothing, and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set a turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban And you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So this is the image that David is trying to conjure up in our minds of of the priest being set apart and consecrated and and the oil coming pouring down his head and onto that big old beard and glistening in the sun and running all the way down. It's not just a little bit of oil. It's a, a plentiful amount of oil that God is pouring out in order to set him apart for his priestly Work And this is significant. It's not the beard that's important in verse 2. It's the oil. You see, oil in the scriptures has always been a sign of God's presence throughout the Bible. It is not only a sign of God's presence, but listen, it is a marker, a symbol of his spirit's power. Okay? So what he's saying in Psalm 33 is this. Is that in a sinful world in which the norm Is division and hostility and segmentation of our lives and mistrusting of other human beings. The coming together of God's people in unity, it's like the oil, the plentiful oil. It's a sign of God's presence. It is a symbol of the Spirit's power in our lives and upon His church. You see, to live together in spiritual oneness and our fellowship, in our worship, in our mission. It is a rich blessing. Unity is poured out on the church by the Holy Spirit as we receive it from Him. And when we walk in unity, it is a pleasing aroma to God. It is a blessing to the entire body as we are set apart and, 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 and set out and marked as holy. And most importantly, it is a sign and a wonder to the world. Now, The opposite can also be true, right? The opposite can also be true. When God's people fail to come together in unity, when God's people fail to dwell in unity, it grieves the Spirit of God. Our disunity, our division, our dividing ourselves over things that are not important, it grieves the heart of God. It also tears apart what it is that God has joined together, and it also taints the reputation of Christ In the world, and sadly, church, this is far too common. Sadly, it's far too common. You know, what's far too common is that people will forsake the gathering of the church. Hebrews 10 warns us against this. Rather than coming together to maintain and and build up the unity, coming together to worship God in unity, many will forsake it, will come when it's convenient. Far too often, it's too common that we'll fail to carry one another's burdens. What Paul says in Galatians 6.2, carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Far too common, we will refuse to weep with those who weep. Stand in solidarity with those among us who are in pain. As Paul commands in Romans 12.15. Far too common in the church today, we'll withhold our resources and fail to meet the needs of those among us the kind of unity that we're pointed to in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, when it says that all were together and had all things in common and met one another's needs. Maybe more importantly, we will fail to bring our needs to the church. We'll actually hold back our needs in pride and self-sufficiency or fear so that our needs can't get met in unity by our brothers and sisters. Unfortunately, it's far too common that we're quick to gossip and slander rather than being eager to maintain the unity of the church Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And by the way, one of the primary ways that gossip and slander happens these days, it's not even so much with our tongue anymore, it's with our thumbs. You realize that? What we say, what we tweet, what we share, what we text. You see, when these things happen, not only is God's heart grieved, but our own joy is robbed And our witness in the world is tainted. It's why David wrote this song, because this is our human condition. He writes this song. He tells the ancient Israelites, he says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. He's saying unity, it is a sign of God's presence. It is an assurance of his spirit among us. It is for our good. It is a blessing to the world. What a gift to be unified by God, to be called up together by God, to be brought together by God, to worship God with brothers and sisters in unity. And then he gives another image in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. What's he talking about here? How many of you guys are mountain people? How many of you love the mountains, like to camp or trek in the mountains? Some of you, yeah, I'm more of a beach person. But I do have been to the mountains a few times. I've had some friends in college that drugged me on a kind of a, a trip, trekking up some mountains and camping, and it was miserable. But I do, remember, uh, I do remember that the mountain air, you breathe that stuff, you're like, wow, this is fresh. And I also remember s- uh, camping and waking up in the morning and my sl- sleeping bag soaking wet, and it hadn't even rained. You know what I'm talking about? The dew, right, of the, of the mountain air. It's, it, that was not so refreshing, by the way. That's when I was like, I'm over this. Um, but here's the point he's making. Think about this. To, to the Is, ancient Israelites who lived in a dry desert land where moisture was rare. Think about this. He's saying, he's saying the unity of God's people, it's like the dew on the Mount of Hermon that falls down on the hills of Zion where Israel dwells. And it, it, to, to them, this would have been like saying it's like a cool front in July and August in central Texas. How refreshing and life-giving. Rare but beautiful and incredible. People want more of it. That's what he's saying. Mount Hermon, it was the highest mountain in that part of the world. It it, it rises over 9,000 feet above sea level. It's located about 129 miles north of Jerusalem. In fact, at times, snow would cover the peaks throughout the year. And and when the snow melts, running down the Mount of Hermon was one of the primary water sources that filled the Jordan River. So the psalmist is saying that the unity of God's people, it is nourishing and it is life-giving. It is sustaining in a dry and desert place. Both us coming together when we bring our busy and fragmented lives, our divided selves together around Jesus and unity. It's nourishing to us and it's life-giving to us when we gather with the church, when we gather in community. And it's also nourishing and life-giving to the world, to a non-believing world It's attractive to the world. Did you know that this is one of our hopes for, go- for our gospel communities here at Redeemer? Is that they wouldn't just be, uh, you know, a place where you can have a midweek Bible study, but that it would be so much more than that. That it would be a life-giving, nourishing community, both for you and for the world. For your friends, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, To see people from different backgrounds, with different stories, different interests. You know, there's some people in my gospel community that I have nothing in common with but Jesus. And yet we are committed to growing as brothers, sisters. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Yeah. That's our hope, is it would be more than just a Bible study, but it would actually be a place where you grow up in this kind of unity, in this ecosystem that God has created for your own growth. And that it would be a place where your your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers would, would see you committed to other people, would see you committed to the church, would see your life lived in unity and community, and that it might pique their interest, that it might even be attractive. This is our hope for gospel communities. Now, there are some who would maybe say, Yeah, okay, hey, I get it. I understand that you Christians value community, that unity is important, but what's so unique about what you guys do? You know? I mean, aren't you still just kind of getting together around a common interest and it's your faith? What's so unique about it? I mean, can't, you know, there might be some who say, Can I find community, you know, uh, through the baseball field? I can find, you know, my kids' sports. We have our baseball community. Can I find community at the bowling alley in my bowl? Do people still bowl? Is that still a thing? Bowling leagues? Is that still a thing? Maybe it is. If it is, can I find community in my bowling league on Tuesday nights? Can I find community in a mom group? Can I find community after work happy hour with my coworkers? What's so unique about Christian community? Well, David's actually going to tell us in the final line of the psalm. Look at the final line of Psalm 133. He says, for the Lord has commanded the blessing. Underline that if you're a Bible underliner. The Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What's he talking about? He closes this song with a reminder that God commands unity among his people. God is very serious about his people being unified. Why? He's serious about real unity among his people too. Not affinity. See, that's the difference. That's where Christian community is unique. We're not talking about affinity. We're not talking about having some common interests with other people. You know, you might have affinity with people at the baseball field because both your kids play baseball. That's not unity. That's affinity. You might have some affinity with people who, you know, have the same interests that you have. Or happy hour. You might make some friends, but that's affinity. You work together. That's the only reason you're together. It's affinity. He's not talking about uniformity either. You know, uniformity, where if you think this certain way and act a certain way and you're about these certain things, then you're in this group. That's uniformity. You have to conform in order to be in. That's not what he's talking about. And by the way, that's really trendy in today's culture, is uniformity. Think this way. Take this label. Politicians actually want to uh, push this on us and say, hey, you're either this or you're either this. If your skin color this, this is what you are. If your gender's this, this is what you are. They want to push uniformity upon us. That's not what he's talking about. God commands something different, something unique, something in which there is life and life forevermore. See, what God offers is real unity. He is committed to this, and He has been from the foundations of the world. And he is committed to establishing this in the world, overcoming our sin problem of division and hostility and strife and creating a people, a new humanity, in which there is real, powerful, life-giving unity. What a gift. Amen? Amen. In fact... This is the entire biblical story, if you think about it. Creation, fall, personal, relational, societal sin spreads across the earth, and God sets in to create real unity. God chooses Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He sets apart Israel to begin to experience this and, and share it with the world. See, their unity was a critical part of their calling. He gave them the law and the temple and the atonement system and priests and kings and prophet to help them. But the command to love God and to love neighbor, they could not keep. The effects of sin were too deep. Even the people of God, even God's own people who had all of those things were too proud and too divided to live in unity and experience oneness and worship and fellowship, and mission. I mean, this is the whole story of Israel. It's not a story of brothers dwelling together in unity. That's not what it is at all. It's a story of brothers divided and destroying. It's a story of Cain and Abel. It's a murder story. It's a story of Joseph. It's a jealousy story. It's a story of Miriam and Aaron who fought with their brother Moses. David and his brothers were divided. David's sons were no better. In fact, by the time that Jesus is born, Israel is so divided like peak divided. There are Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots, and they're all against one another. There is classism and favoritism among Israel. Even in their worship, there is prejudice and partiality in the temple uh, during Jesus' days. It's why he flips over the tables and cracks whips. He was disgusted by it. This division, even among Israel, it was a mess. I mean, this was God's people, and they were divided, much less the whole world. God's, the whole world, humanity, a mess and divided. Now, I want you to imagine Jesus. I want you to imagine Jesus, this young boy Jesus. I want you to imagine him traveling to Jerusalem with his family, those three times a year, taking that pilgrimage, singing these songs. I want you to imagine young Jesus singing this song, I want you to imagine him considering this ideal people, a diverse but unified, a new humanity, a true brotherhood, a people unified in God his Father, a people pleasing to God and life-giving to the world. I want you to imagine Jesus. I want you to imagine young Jesus longing and hoping for this as he sings this song and he travels to the temple to worship, his heart stirred up. I want you to think of Jesus after his baptism, what happens? Jesus is baptized. His ministry is launched. The Spirit of God comes down upon him. What does it do? It anoints him. Falling down upon him, setting him apart, consecrating him. An abundance of the Spirit. What you do then? What does he do next? Think of Jesus. He begins to call together anyone and everyone. Jesus begins to gather. He start, he's starting a new movement. He's going to establish a new kingdom. And anyone and everyone can come and follow Jesus. He calls together into intimate brotherhood, into intimate discipleship, Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector. I mean, these guys could not have been any different. These guys would have absolutely hated one another. The zealots hated the tax collectors. They couldn't stand them. And Jesus says to both of them, come in and follow me. And he calls them into intimate fellowship. There might be some of you here who think, you know what? I need, in order to find a church that's more unified, I need to go find people more like me. That's not true. Not, in, not with Jesus, not in his gospel. He calls people together around him. He welcomes Nicodemus, who was well put together with the same grace that he welcomes an adulterous woman at the well, a leper, and the poor. I want you to think of Jesus in some of his final moments, in his final days. He's praying. And what does he pray for in John 17? What does he pray for? Unity. Oneness. Listen to what he says. John 17, 16 through 21. He says, They are not of the world, talking about his his disciples. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. There's that word again, isn't it? Interesting. That they also may be sanctified or consecrated in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for you right now. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see Jesus' heart for his new covenant people? After Jesus prays for this, what does he do? He suffers and he dies to secure it. His blood is shed and poured out so that your sins could be forgiven. His body is torn apart. His physical body is ripped apart to shred, so that his new body, the church, could be made one, so that it could be unified and, and healed. He not only reconciles us to God, but he tears down the dividing wall of hostility between us. He creates a new way for us to exist with one another through him and by his blood. But he's not done. He is raised from the dead he resurrects and in his resurrection he inaugurates the kingdom of god in other words a new way of life living under the lordship of king jesus changes everything for us we no longer live under the rule and reign of sin and satan but we live under the rule and reign of the resurrected king jesus and now everything changes. Everything is different. And he establishes the church. He calls us together. He says, come on, come on in. Come and worship me with other brothers and sisters. Belong to the church. Be committed to the church. And the church is to be an outpost of the coming kingdom. That it would be a place, a a people in every place who would share with the world a taste of what it will be like when Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the church, is, in every place, is to be a people that offer a taste of what it will be like when God finally sets this whole thing right. And we get a glimpse of one of those pictures in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Here's what's going to happen. A great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, singular, one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is your future, unity for all eternity. This is the blessing that will go to all nations, all peoples, life forevermore oneness with one another under the lordship and rule and reign of Christ. You see Jesus is so committed to this that he gives his spirit to help us. That he gives us spirit to come and dwell among us and in us and with us to help us be unified. You know, we don't create unity. We we don't unity is not the goal. Christ is the goal. And when we seek Christ, Christ creates unity and Jesus has given us his spirit to help us. To help us do what? Maintain the unity that he's given us. Listen to one more scripture, Ephesians 4, 1-7. I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness. You see, the gospel of grace humbles us with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is a major benefit of the gospel. This is a major part of God's vision and plan of redemption for the world. Unity, oneness. In fact, here's an incredible thought as we close. The risen and reigning Jesus. Did you know that he sits on the throne and right now he is interceding on your behalf? He's Right now he's interceding. He's praying for you. He's interceding for his church right now, even in the crazy mess of the world in which we are living in, where there's, so much, there's been so much division People, we have, the church has been so divided over things like politics and politicians and, and COVID guidelines and policies and masks, all of it. The church has been so divided. But guess what the Lord Jesus has been doing? He's been risen and he's, he's reigning. He's been interceding and praying for his church. He's given his spirit and the spirit is working right now to restore and, and maintain unity. Jesus, think about this, is still praying John 17 right now for his church. Lord, Father, may they be one. That the world may know that you sent me. Would they be one? What a thought. What a blessing. What a gift. What a Savior our Lord Jesus is. Overcoming our sin and our division and our hostility. What a sign and a symbol of God's spirit among us. What a gift we get to give to the world. I want to ask you, really simply, are you walking in it? Are you walking in the unity of Christ? Are you pursuing it? Are you eager to maintain unity? Are you seeking people who are different from you? To listen, to hear, to love, to know? Are you? It's hard work, but it's worth it. You see, unity has been secured for you. Whether it be you need it in your marriage, you need it in your gospel community, you need it in your family, through Christ and his precious blood, it is a gift that you get to walk in. What a gift. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.